Well, we're back in Titus, our second Sunday of nine. And uh, my wife and I occasionally watch detective dramas. Anybody else watch those kind of like murder mystery sort of things? And I've realized that when people come to a crime scene, right, or a potential crime scene, there's generally one of two responses. Do you know what they are? So if you are someone who um, uh, is not prepared for that experience, uh, the general response is like fear, terror, screaming, right? Like, ah, right? Like, oh my goodness, what happened? Uh, If you are someone, if you're a police, someone in the police force or a first responder or maybe just a paramedic type or a medical type, what's the first thing people do when they come to a crime scene like that? They check for a pulse. They go like, right? I don't know how to do it right, but this is, you know, all all our medical people are like, that's wrong. (laughs) They check for a pulse to see what's going on. Is there a heartbeat? Is there life? And last week, as we looked at Titus 1, 1 through 4, we looked at what should be the heartbeat of a, of a healthy church, that we should care deeply about the good news of Jesus and be people who care about faith and truth and godliness and hope. But now as we move to verse 5, Paul essentially tells Titus, it's time to get to work. It's time to address the issues that exist in the churches on the island of Crete. Paul and Titus had worked together in crisis situations before, In fact, if you want to know where Titus shows up the most, it's in the church at Corinth. If you know anything about them, there was work to do there. That was a challenging situation. But now Paul says, time to embark on the work ahead. And we've been looking at this book as it touches on this theme of a healthy church. So let's read verse 5 together, then we'll pray. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete. That's about as clear a purpose statement as you can get. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. You could read pastors, pastor teachers, as I directed you. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that our time in your word this morning would be instructive. It would be challenging. It would be encouraging. It would bring hope. It would push us that we would not be content with where we are or what we know or how we're living, but that we might always pursue a further relationship with you, a deeper belief, a more godly life. Lord, would this, these verses help us in that pursuit today? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's get right to it. Last year we looked, last week, to the fact that healthy churches don't happen by accident. And I mentioned already what their heartbeat is, that, that what is happening with the gospel, that Jesus is at the center of what happens in a healthy church. But we jump right into verse 5 that we just read, and we see this. Healthy churches deal with their problems. Notice I didn't say there that healthy churches may have problems. All churches have problems. All churches have problems because all churches have peoples. They have you's and me's. They have issues. You know that from your home. You know that from your workplace. Now, it's really easy to pawn off those issues on someone else, right? That's been happening since the Garden of Eden. But the reality is that as much as you want to play the blame game, the blame can always rest right back on me and you. Problems are a part of a church, And so the first thing that we see as churches deal with their problems is that healthy churches honestly see their problems. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained in order. There are things that need to be addressed. Always. I put some quick graphics around this idea today because the the verses that we're going to study really go on in this case to address how to find healthy leaders. But I I just want to give you a little like fodder for discussion, some ideas for thought when you think about a church and its problems. Problems in churches happen in one of three ways. They happen in what we know. They happen in what we believe. And they happen in how we live. Right? That's the, that's the Bible picture up there and the heart picture and the hand picture. So, so we might have a problem because we're not rightly understanding the doctrine, say, for instance, of the Trinity. That God is three in one. And our heads might get a little like, I don't know how to put that all together in my head. So therefore, I'm going to fix it and change it to be something I understand. And we're, belie- or we're knowing the wrong thing. Later on in these verses, Paul's going to challenge Titus that the church would have sound doctrine, healthy truth. And as much as you may blow through a church's statement of faith, you ought to read it. Because it matters underneath what we know, what our truth according to the Bible is. It, It matters what God's word says and that we're not making up our own ideas. But it matters that we believe that. Have you ever found yourself struggling to believe There are heart problems well beyond that, right? Have you ever found yourself struggling to love? Have you ever found yourself uh, struggling with fear or discouragement? Those are things on the emotional level, worry. They're happening in our hearts with what we believe. Sometimes we talk about what we feel, but it, it comes back to what we believe. And then sometimes we just have problems with how we live, don't we? I mean, you could just read Romans 7 and see how frustrated Paul is with the things that he knows to do but doesn't do. That can be like marriage 101. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But man, that's hard. And sometimes I just live in a selfish way, don't I? We, We know what God has said about how we should live morally, but aren't we tempted to do things that are immoral? To tolerate things that aren't right? So problems exist on those three levels, and they always exist because we are either adding or subtracting something from God's word. In other words, we're either making something God's words that isn't, or we're ignoring something that's there. Problems exist everywhere, including in the church. That's why Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But the presence of problems doesn't invalidate the importance of institutions. This is part of the culture of our day. Government is broken, or family is broken, or the church is broken, so therefore we should get rid of all the structures and all the leadership, and, and we should just like swing the other way. The Bible doesn't teach us that either. It says, yes, all those institutions are marred by sin, but they're God-placed structures that are helpful to us. So problems happen in the head, the heart, and the life, and they happen when we add or subtract. So what ought our heart to be? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31, talking actually about the time around the Lord's table, says this, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You know what we need to be? We need to learn to be brutally honest with ourselves. Not to ignore our problems, Not to overthink and analyze and go crazy on our problems, 
but to say, where do our problems exist? And how can we address them? My son Timothy has had a problem of late that we've allowed to become our problem and we've let it linger too long. You ever have that as a parent? Like, you know it's there, but you're like, I'll get to it at some point. And that is that I would guess for probably six months or a year now, he has decided that his bed is only good to sleep in for part of the night. Any parent experience this ever? And so sometime in the wee hours of the morning when, when especially Colleen from the exhaustion of a day of being a mom doesn't really know which way the world is spinning, and as a dad, I'm just kind of don't want to deal with it, there's this little body that would crawl into our bed. And at first it's cute, and then it's not. We've got a problem. So on some sage and wise advice from the Petersons, from Nick and Joel. We bought a little alarm clock for Tim's room. Bought it on Saturday, Friday. And we said, Tim, when that alarm clock says seven o'clock, you may get up and come to our room, but not until then. And then I went the extra dad level because I was so frustrated with this problem. Right or wrong, I know it's bribery, but I did it. And I said, uh, and I will give you a dollar. Any morning you sleep through the night and don't come to our bed before seven o'clock. And I don't know what's working better, the clock or the dollar, but we're addressing our problem. When I was uh, a teenager, I was playing basketball with my brothers, and there were only three of us. If you go to play basketball with only three people, you have a problem, don't you? You pretty much have to play two-on-one. So we were playing two-on-one, and uh, uh, this is actually the exact picture of what Titus is saying. This is a world-famous skateboarder. Anybody know who this is? I'm just curious. From my childhood, this is who? Gideon, who is this? Tony Hawk. At a ripe age of 52 years old, still skateboarding, and uh, had a fall, if you can tell. And there's some bones that are not where they're supposed to be. Some of you are not even looking right now. <laughs> You're like, change the slide. I was playing with my brothers. We were playing two-on-one, and uh, I was the one. And so my one brother had the ball. He passed to the other brother. I went over here and I remember I put out my hands like this to block the ball, the next pass. And my brother passed it and it hit me on the top of the thumb. Right? And my thumb relocated down one notch. And I looked down at my thumb and it was sitting just like this. And this thought went through my head as a, I don't know, it was 13, 14, 15. That's not good. That's a problem. And I don't know exactly what went through my head next because I'm not a medical type, as you know from the pulse thing earlier. Um, but I reached down with my other hand. And I grabbed my thumb and I put it back. Whoop! Bam! And then I went home crying. <laughs> like, I was like, wow, that really hurt. <laughs> right? There was a problem and it got addressed. And here's the reality. Healthy churches not only honestly see their problems, but they actively solve their problems. Look at the way, the way this, these verses go on. Paul says to Titus, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward, what a great phrase there. The, the the people that a church is recognizing to help lead them are just God's managers. See, see you're, not, you're not picking a pastor or, a, or recognizing someone called by the Spirit for your own church. 
You're actually saying, God, we believe this person should be a manager of your place, of your people. What a great thought. What an important thought. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And I got to tell you this morning, as we walk through these verses quickly, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And in part, it's because there are two churches that I know personally that are in this search right now. And it's actually a passion of ours at Gospel Hope that God would raise up more and more people, more and more men who fit this qualification list. Whether they be pastors who are paid, whether they be leaders who are unpaid, whether they be church planters, that God would raise people up. But listen, left to ourselves, we are tempted to pick people for all the wrong reasons. We're tempted to look at the executive world in the community and say, what does it take to be a good chief executive officer? We're tempted to look at politics. No, we don't look there. Forget that. That's a no list, right? But, but what would a good government leader look like? What kind of leader would I like to have? Well, what does God have to say? Here was a church facing a lack of leadership among the little churches around the island. And Paul essentially says to Titus, godly leaders must be found. And next week, uh, Pastor Lloyd will preach on how wrong teaching must be confronted. Healthy churches actively solve their problems. And I want to give you three sets of three this morning. See if you can remember that. Three sets of three that will help you as you think through what does a godly pastor look like. So here you go. Number one, as we consider what these verses have to teach us, here are three Bible chapters you should have marked. If you're in Titus 1 right now, I'd encourage you to write down these other two chapters when you're looking for pastors. And, and 1 Timothy 3, by the way, is starred because that one actually includes deacons. So, so pastors follow Jesus' example and lead by shepherding, by caring for the church family, spiritually especially. And deacons lead in serving, in helping meet the needs of the body. But 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5 should be on your list. Let me give you three M's from these verses. Look at the end of verse 5. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, some translations say if any man is above reproach, but then look at the first phrase, the husband of one wife. When we talk about pastors, and this is not chauvinistic, this is not arrogant. This is how God designed the world. You say, yeah, but I know of an exception. Yes, there are exceptions. Deborah is an exception. There, there are times in the Bible, and I would argue, where there was a lack of guys to lead, and God said, yes, there's a place here where I need a woman to lead. But Jesus could have picked any 12 people he wanted to be his disciples, right? God could have picked anyone to be the king of Israel. The judges that we read about could have been any gender. And what does God say? I have given men the responsibility to be the leaders. By the way, that's not a responsibility we should take lightly. It's a big deal. 
But as we select pastors, we want to look for men. We want to look for men who are mature. That's the idea of an elder. Not just mature in age, but mature in their faith. Not, not new. 1 Timothy 5 says he must not be, a, or 1 Timothy 3, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 1 Timothy 5 says don't lay hands on anyone quickly. There ought to be a demonstrated maturity in our leaders. And then lastly, there ought to be more than one. Paul says appoint elders in every town, plural. There's a danger in single leadership, isn't there? One, that the weight of leadership would be crushing. And two, that there wouldn't be the necessary checks and accountability among leaders. Even in a church that can only afford one pastor to be paid, churches ought to pursue having multiple men who meet these qualifications. Men, mature, and more than one. And then three considerations. Believe it or not, this is my last point this morning. So we are right there, but it's the rest of the text. If anyone, verse 6, is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You're going to see that phrase above reproach twice. And here's the deal. God has a high standard for pastors. That idea of above reproach is not just that a pastor could not be um, found guilty of a charge. It's that you couldn't even imagine him being accused. See the difference? Above reproach, blameless, exemplary, that you would go, there's no way. Now that doesn't mean that pastors don't pull the wool over people's eyes, or that there aren't areas of your life, their life that you don't know. But when you evaluate someone to say, is this person qualified to lead in the church? You ought to say, are they above reproach? Well, where should they be above reproach? First of all, in their home. And you know why the home is so important? Because it's the area of closest influence. If you want to figure out how somebody affects other people, look at their areas of closest influence. So what does it say about a pastor's home? Here you go. The husband of one wife. The idea there is not just that he is only married to one person, but that he's a man of love and loyalty to his spouse. He has a profound effect on his children. God allows him to have this effect. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The idea is this, that a pastor's family ought to include children who are believing and behaving. Now that's sobering. That's hard, because I can tell you that any pastor you know has heartaches in his home, in his marriage, with his children. But what God is saying here is not unclear. If a man aspires to be a pastor and his children are not believing, or even if they are claiming to be believing, but they're living a reckless lifestyle, a self-indulgent lifestyle, an immoral lifestyle, a partying lifestyle, or a rebellious lifestyle, then according to God's qualifications, he's not qualified. You say, well, it might not be his fault. God could have said that. But he said, here's the expectation. And there's actually dignity in a man walking away, even for a time, because his family doesn't meet these qualifications. Consider their home. 
Secondly, consider their character. Let's just walk through this list quickly together. Starting in verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. There it is again. He must not be arrogant. You know what this means? This means he's self-willed. And by the way, the world that we live in would trumpet this as a badge of honor for a leader. That he is strong. That he, he's even pushing, like he forces his will so that the company will change. You know what God says when he's looking for shepherds? That ought not be our place. We ought to be people who are easy to entreat, easy to ask questions, humble. It doesn't have to be my way. That's one way God's leader differs from the world's leader. He's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. The idea here is not that he never gets angry, but that is not his pattern. You're not worried to talk to your pastor because he might blow up, and you've seen him do it before. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a drunkard. He's not abusing substances to feel better. And by the way, that's not just limited to alcohol. We can all recognize that there are plenty of substances, albeit food or drugs or other things that can make someone feel better. That ought not to be a place that a pastor goes for relief. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. It, it's, it was actually evident in the early church that it was acceptable in their culture to, to solve disagreements with like a fist fight. Or, or remember the eras in our country where you solve things through a duel? Right? You bring your pistol, I bring my pistol, and we solve this issue. Pastors are not supposed to be people who solve things through force. Who resolve things through fights. They're not aggressive. They're shepherds. Or greedy for gain. Listen, this is everywhere too, isn't it? Any way that we can get or make money is the way to go. Pastors should not be greedy. And that's what I would call the watch out list. Like, woo, woo, woo. Alarm, alarm, alarm. No, no, no. That's that list. But then there's like a yes, yes, yes list. Like these are good, good, good. Things that we ought to look for in a leader. Do you see it? But hospitable. A lover of good. You know what this is saying? This is saying, there's, these are actually both compound words. One means that they are affectionate towards strangers. That, that anyone can come through the door of the church or, or anybody in any stage of life can come be a part and, and pastors have open and welcoming hearts. They're friendly. They don't play favorites. They just have an open door of welcome. And not only are they affectionate towards strangers, they're affectionate towards everything in life that's good. You know, there's a lot of things in life that are good. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're all tainted by sin in some way, aren't they? I mean, how much better would Salt Lake City be if we didn't have an inversion? Like, I think there are mountains up there somewhere. I remember driving through the city when I first got here and there were like particles in the air and I could see them. Like, what? Can you imagine what a perfect world is going to be like? I can't even. But wise leaders, godly leaders, they love things that are good. It's okay for them to love good food, not too much of it, but to love good food, to, to love the beauty of God's creation, to love good design, to love, to love a good board game with friends, to love relationships. There ought to be a positive joy in the good things of the world that you see in your leaders. 
If, if one of your pastors recommends something for you to watch, you ought not to go, oh, I wonder what that's going to be like. Anymore, it's about impossible to recommend anything to watch, but you're like, this is, this is good. Here are things that are morally good. Here's, here's kindness on display. Here's forgiveness. Here's love. Like, this is good. You ought to love what's good. They ought to be self-controlled. That's actually the, the idea of having a sober mind. It's someone who's cool-headed. It's the opposite of the angry outburst. It's that they're, they're level. They can see things clearly. Upright is the idea of just being fair. They're even-handed. They don't play favorites. They're just. They're holy. That's the idea for being devout. They have a genuine relationship with God and a love for him and a love for things that are holy, not things that are evil. And then lastly, disciplined or self-controlled. You know, a, a good leader is, is self-judging. They're self-aware. They're self-checking. I mean, you might see something in the life of one of your pastors and say, hey, can I talk to you about that? And probably when you talk to them, be like, yeah, that's an area that I've struggled with. And I, this person helps hold me accountable there. Or, or I talk to my wife about that a lot. And they're, they're just self-checking. They're self-controlled. Those are the things that we should welcome. And lastly, consider their teaching. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Here is a man who is anchored in God's word. They're not wavering or unsure. Yes, we're always learning, but you ought not to talk to someone who wants to hold this biblical role and have them say, yeah, there's so many things I haven't even figured out. I just, I really don't have any idea. They ought to be sound, anchored, firm, and able to teach so that he may be able to give instruction. This is one of the distinguishing characteristics of deacons and pastors, by the way. Pastors ought to be apt to teach, gifted to teach, to instruct. That doesn't mean they all have to feel comfortable standing up here in front of all of you. But they ought to know God's word and be able to teach and share it. That's the positive. The negative is they ought to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. They ought to stand against error and evil. You don't want a spineless pastor. You don't want an arrogant or violent one either. But you want one who knows the truth, who's settled in it, who can teach it to you, and who can stand for it in the face of error. It's a pretty daunting list. As the guy standing up here to open God's word and share it with you. I feel like Paul a little bit, and who is sufficient for these things? That's why I actually asked Andrew if we could sing Just As I Am, because that's how I feel even as we walk through these verses. There, there are days in my home that are hard. There are holes in my own character. There are days where I'd, I'd rather let something go than stand for what's right. But these are God's standards. This is what I have to get on my knees and say, God, please, please make me a man like this. P please preserve my home. Please grow my character. Please help me to know and love and faith be faithful to your word. I don't know if you've heard about this guy. I don't know how you use the uh, pandemic, but there's actually a man in, in the Chicago area who started a uh, YouTube channel called Dad, How Do I? How many of you are familiar with this? It's kind of hit the news a few months ago. And basically, it's a guy who grew up without a dad. His dad left his home when he was 12 years old and never taught him a lot of things that uh, he wished a dad had taught his son. 
So he started a channel, and if you can see it up there, he's got some different sections to it. Here are some of his most recent videos. Uh, Simply Safe, How to Grill, right? How to Start a Campfire, Roast Marshmallows. Uh, he did a story time even. Socket Sets, How to Build a Bench. Uh, he's got a whole bunch of videos, and you'd love it. But here he is saying to sons, in a lot of cases, guys without dads or, or terrible learners like this guy, here's some help. Here's some advice. Here's some instruction. And I just wonder, as we come to God's list about pastors, will we listen to him? Or are we tempted with the strategies of our day to seek leaders who are powerful and inspirational instead of leaders of proven influence? That's the home. Are we tempted to look for men who are compelling or charismatic or charming instead of men of character? And are we tempted to look for those who are empowered by human talent or who are empowered with God's truth. That's what we ought to look for in our leaders. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. We pray that we would listen, that we would hear, that we would follow your direction as we look for leaders. And Lord, would you provide those men? Would you protect our homes? Would you shape our character? Would you help us to love your word? Or would we have a problem at Gospel Hope where there are so many leaders who are aspiring and growing and you're building that we're not even really sure where they can all go? Or would you help us all to aspire to this sort of character and this sort of home and this sort of love for your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.